Good morning. If you would turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. We'll be looking at the second part of the third story in Luke 15. We have our Awana kicking off this week. And we have so many wonderful ministers who have stepped up to serve our children. If you're not involved in Awana, please be praying. And that would be a very crucial aspect of this ministry because we are praying that each one of these children would come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And our responsibility in that is to teach, proclaim, and to pray for them. So if you would please pray for our young people every Wednesday, 6.30 to 8 o'clock. You know, Scripture makes it clear that we are saved through the gospel of the Word of God. Peter said you were saved not by the perishable seed, but by the imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. Paul says uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And James says, says, uh, you were born again of his own will uh, by the word of truth. And so the word of God is what is going to uh, save these young people. And it's also the word of God that will grow them up in the faith. Jesus said, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Thy word is truth. And so please be praying that these children would be born again, converted to Christ, and would be conformed to the image of Christ. And my prayer is that one day we will be celebrating commissioning services as we commission these young people out as missionaries and as preachers uh, of the Word of God. But our responsibility is to pray and to preach and to teach. And so please play your role in that. Well, if you would, look with me. In Luke chapter 15, verses 29 and verse 30. The elder brother here is responding uh, to a party that the father has thrown for the prodigal who's come home. And he said to the father, Look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Let's pray. Father, we learn today that this entire chapter is an indictment on ceremonial outward religion that is not heart and gospel driven. And Father, as one who has been raised in Southern Baptist life his entire life, I know how easy it is to fall prey to works-based religion and hide behind it. And I pray that this word, this text today would chasten that for us. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone who, who thinks they're going to heaven because of their performance, their merits, their morality... Lord, that you would break their heart with this text today and save them. We pray that we could learn today as we sit at the feet of Jesus in this parable. And we ask this in his name. Amen. In 1981, the Broadway play Amadeus won the Tony Award for the best Broadway play of the year. And in that play, uh, there is a young man named Antonio Solidari. 
And he makes this vow to God early on in his life. It's a bargain that he makes with God. And here's what he prays to God. Lord, make me a great composer. He was a musician. He wanted to be great. He said, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world. Dear God, make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return, I vow I will give you my chastity, that is my purity, my industry, my deepest humility, every hour of my life, and I will help my fellow man all I can. And so he begins this life with this vow. He stays pure. He never compromises himself with the opposite sex. He works hard at his music. He, he helps other musicians with their music. He teaches them. He trains them. He disciples them in music. He helps the poor diligently. And his career goes well. And he believes God is keeping his end of the bargain. But then along comes a man named Mozart. Maybe you've heard of Mozart. Mozart was more gifted than Salieri. In fact, his giftings were off the charts. And Mozart's middle name was Amadeus, which means beloved by God. But Mozart was a self-absorbed, immoral, self-indulgent prodigal son like we read about last week. And yet here he is, a man whose menace or his, his career is taking off because of his talents. And this creates a crisis of faith for a solidarity. The crisis is this. He is the committed one. He's the moral one. And yet his talents are far less than Mozart's, who is the wicked one, the immoral one. He gets very angry at this. And his words to God in response are close to the words we see today from the elder brother. Here's what he says to the father in light of Mozart's giftings and immorality. It's incomprehensible. Here I was denying all my natural lust in order to deserve God's gift. Notice, in order to deserve God's gift. And there was Mozart indulging his in all directions, even though engaged to be married, and no rebuke at all from God. That was his problem. Eventually, Salieri says this to God, From now on, we are enemies, you and I. And he begins to seek to destroy Mozart and his reputation. Now, here's a guy whose noble efforts seem to be quite um, honest and upstanding. But when tested, 
When squeezed, we begin to see that his noble efforts were not what they appeared to be. It appeared that he was doing these things for other people's sake. He was doing, he was sacrificing for God's sake. But when squeezed, when pressed, it came out that he was actually doing all of these noble things for his own sake. So that he could obtain something. So that he could achieve notoriety and fame. But the moment he realized that all of his sacrifices were not bringing about what he thought he deserved, his heart became embittered. He became very angry. In fact, he developed a murderous heart. And soon, this moral upstanding Salieri proves himself to be capable of greater evil than, ironically, the irreligious Mozart. Now, this is essentially the second part of the story of the prodigal in a nutshell. Uh, many people are familiar with the story of the prodigal, but many people are not familiar with how it ends and to whom Jesus is speaking this parable to. Because the ending of the story and the people to whom Jesus is telling this story tells us really what the main point of the story is. Now we've got to remember the situation. For those of you that are visiting with us, the situation takes us all the way back to verse 1 of the chapter. Uh, verse 1 tells us the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. They were attracted to Jesus. They were attracted to him because he had de deconstructed all the categories about what it means to be right with God. And he was showing them compassion and mercy. And they were being brought to the end of themselves because they were being melted by that compassion and mercy. That's the situation. But out of that situation comes a stress. Notice in verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. These Pharisees were very aware who Jesus was claiming to be. He claimed to be the anointed one of God, Luke chapter 14. He claimed to sit on David's throne. He was the coming king that was hoped for, the Messiah. He was the holy one of God. He was the prophet of God that Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. They were very aware of what he was claiming to be and who he claimed to be. And yet here he was dining and commuting with sinners. And that set them off. And out of that... Jesus gives us a parable, a three-part parable, three stories. And in that first story, he tells about the, the sheep that, is, that strays and the shepherd goes and retrieves that straying sheep. And then he tells the story of the coin, the lost coin. And the housewife sweeps the house. She lights a lamp and she searches diligently for the, the lost coin. And then she, he tells this third story about the prodigal son who leaves after receiving his father's inheritance prior to the father's death, which was unheard of. And then he goes and he wastes it all, but he comes to the end of himself and he, he comes home and the father throws a party. That was this context for the elder brother's attitude as we approach this text. Here was a son who had wasted everything. He was an immoral man. And then the father receives him back and absorbs all the debts 
this younger brother had accrued and the father absorbs the debt in himself and he throws a party for him. And essentially what Jesus is seeking to demonstrate is God's joy in the salvation of sinners. And this elder brother who represented the Pharisees was not celebrating. In fact, he was angry. He was bitter at what was going on. But at this point in the story, a a, a banquet has been thrown. A party has been thrown because the lost son has come home. And that brings us up to verse 25. Now the older son was in the field. Uh, That kind of represents one who's out doing his due diligence. You've got a younger son who's out in the far country. Okay? He's the one who has been living rebelliously, sinfully. But the elder brother's in the field. He's doing his work. And he was in the field, and as he came in, he, he drew near to the house. And he heard music and dancing. Now, he doesn't know what's going on at this point, but uh, he recognizes that's out of place. A celebration? A party? I wasn't told about this party. I wasn't told about this celebration. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. I love that language of sound. He's he's received him back and he's now whole, if you will. The intriguing thing here is that the father doesn't go to him before the party begins. Now, we don't want to press this too far. But it could it be that really the father and the elder brother don't have a relationship with one another. Yes, he's diligent, he's committed, but the father didn't go to the elder brother to tell him that a party was going to be thrown for the younger brother who's come home. That's just quite intriguing. It's likely that the father knew that he didn't care anything about the younger brother. If he had cared about the younger brother, when the younger brother first rebelled and asked for the father's inheritance. The elder brother would have been there pleading for him. Don't go. Don't turn your back on the father. But he wasn't there. Or he would have been in the far country searching for his younger brother. But utter indifference to the younger brother's rebellion. Nor did he care about the father. Because if he had cared about the father, he would have been concerned about the father's honor. Because when the younger brother was asking for that inheritance, that was unheard of before a father's death. It was the younger brother's way of seeking the father's death, so to speak. He would have been concerned about the father's honor, but there was no word from the elder brother when that rebellion took place. And so it is clear that there is a lack of relationship here at this point. But now that he knows about the party, the expectation is that he would be there at this party. You see, when the, 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 the sheep was found, they threw a party. Verse 6, 
Uh, they called together their friends and their neighbors, saying, Rejoice, for we have found the sheep that was lost. When the coin was found, they threw a party, friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice, for we have found the coin. And now a party has been thrown, and everyone is sharing in the celebration, but not the elder brother. And just as a side, you know, the Bible... Uh, one of its purposes is to teach us what we should love, what we should treasure, and what we should celebrate. And in this text, we see chapter 15, three different times, the emphasis is on celebrating the salvation of the lost. When we don't celebrate the things the Bible celebrates, we don't have the heart of God. We don't have the mind and perspective of God. And certainly the elder brother did not. Notice in verse 28. But he was angry and he refused to go in. Now here's the man who's dignified. Here's a man who is upstanding in the community. He's a moral man. He's a committed man. He's a man who sacrifices for others. He is an outwardly righteous man. But now that he's pressed, now that he is being squeezed, his real colors are coming out. Do you know people like that? Uh, People that just seem to have it together. Moral people. You wonder, they they don't seem to need God. They get along quite well without God. They're as moral as any person I know at the church. They're as caring and kind and benevolent as anyone I know at the church. But when they get squeezed... Okay, Their idols come to the surface. And this man's idols were coming to the surface. He begins to pout. He's angry. He's heard about this grace party that's going on. And he's very angry about this grace party. He's speechless. He's stunned. He's astonished. But most importantly, he's suspicious. Legalists, elder brother-like people, are very suspicious of grace. Because grace is scandalous for an elder brother. Just as we read this morning in Matthew 20 account. We've been working all day, and you gave the man who worked only one hour the same wage. Grace is scandalous. And elder brothers do not like grace. And they are always suspicious of people who've experienced this grace. He's infuriated with the Father's free offer of forgiveness. Now keep in mind, it wasn't free. The Father absorbs the debt. It was free to the prodigal son. But it wasn't free to the Father. And this elder brother believes the son should pay. He should pay for his behavior. And yet in the elder brother's bitterness and in anger and jealousy, I want you to note the father takes a gracious initiative towards him. He graciously leaves the house and he takes the uh, proactive stance towards the elder brother. Notice in verse 28. His father came out, and I love this, and he entreated him. That word entreat is a very interesting word. It's used often in the New Testament. 
It's a word that means to urge or even to comfort, console, to implore. The father is entreating the elder brother. And I think this statement gives us insight into what the the, the Lord Jesus is doing here. Remember who his audience is. His audience is the Pharisees. That's who he's telling this story to. Uh, This tells us that even as he is laying out this story to the Pharisees, he is saying the Father is entreating you. The Father is entreating you who do not love grace, who do not love mercy and compassion, who do not love sinners. The Father is entreating you. And it's another demonstration of the Father's love. Once again, the prodigal God. As we saw last week, prodigal can mean a couple of things. It can, mean, uh, it can refer to someone who just wastes things. But it can also refer to someone who lavishly pours out things on someone else. And the prodigal God, the prodigal father here is once again going out to find his lost son. See, there's two lost sons in this story. You've got the, the son who's lost in his immorality. And you have the son who's lost in his religion. And so the father graciously and mercifully goes out to his lost son at the cost of his own humiliation. Now why do I say that? Because when the elder son refused to go into the party in the ancient Near East... To refuse to go into a party that the father is thrown would have been shameful towards the father. And yet the father is showing his grace to this son. The same self-sacrificing, self-emptying love is demonstrated, think about this, on the same day by the father to both sons who have sinned and are lost in two different ways. And yet even with the father's condescension, and that's what he's doing, he's condescending, he's going low for the son's sake. Even with the father's condescension, the brother isn't melted. The brother isn't warmed and melted and broken by this grace because he doesn't perceive his need for grace. You see that? Why does he need grace? He has it together. He doesn't want grace. He wants a reward. He wants a reward for what he has done. Notice in verse 29. Very insightful verse. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. What is the main point here? The main point is this. The father's action is gracious. It's not deserved. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing that the father's actions towards us are gracious and not deserved. Because the highest in here, the the most outwardly righteous people in this room are junior varsity compared to the Pharisees. No one in here can compare to the Pharisees' righteousness. 
These people had large, if not the entire portion of the Old Testament memorized. Okay? They knew the Bible. They were devoted to righteous things. Seven days a week. 365 days a year. And yet, even these righteous people, Jesus calls hypocrites. Luke chapter 12. What is hypocrisy? It's when there is a distance between what we portray ourselves to be on the outside and who we really are on the inside. And the distance between what we portray ourselves to be and who we really are is the size, if you will, of our hypocrisy. And the Pharisees were hypocritical. And if truth be known, this room is filled with hypocrites. If the truth be known, this pulpit right now is filled with a hypocrite. We don't want what we deserve. We are utterly desperate for grace. The elder brother had no understanding of that. And of course, the birthplace of hypocrisy is works-based religion. And all of us struggle with that. Works-based, performance-based religion. All of us are seeking salvation. Even atheists are seeking salvation. Now, when, when I talk about the, uh, uh, an atheist seeking salvation, I'm not talking about someone who is seeking salvation from their sins. When I use the word salvation there, I'm just referring to the fact that all of us are seeking to be happy. All of us are seeking purpose and significance. All of us are seeking to find our identity in something. And all of us struggle with a works-based, kind of performance-based religion. And this elder brother here is going to give us some insights into works-based religion. The first mark that we see here of works-based religion is the self-serving motives. Notice again in verse 29. Look, these many years I have served you. The word there for served literally means I have been a slave for you. Notice it's not out of love. It's not out of response to the Father's grace and love. It's someone who's doing something out of duty. It's someone who's doing something to get something in return. He's not serving because he has received... He's serving in order to get something that he doesn't have. And in that way, he's no different than the prodigal. He and the younger brother are closer than we even realize at face value. Because both of them wanted what they wanted. They just had different ways of getting it. The younger brother felt like his way to salvation was to enjoy all the pleasures of this world. Because salvation for him was... Pleasure. Okay? A hedonist, if you will. And so he rebels outwardly. The elder brother, his salvation was to receive the accolades of men, human approval. And so the way he rebelled was by his religion, by his outward works. But it was self-serving. It's very clear there. A second mark of works-based religion that we see here in this text is that 
It is rooted in pride and self-righteousness. Notice in verse 29, he said, and this is remarkable language, I never disobeyed your command. Really? He's the most unloving human being you will find in the Bible. And Jesus has already made it clear in Luke chapter 10 that the sum of religion is to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. That's what he told the lawyer. Is this man loving? Then how can he say, I've never disobeyed you? And secondly, is true righteousness the kind of righteousness that parades itself? This man is very proud of his righteousness. He's publicizing his own merits. And this is not love. This is not righteousness. Thirdly, works-based religion is unforgiving. Now think about that. Um, By nature, works-based things are unforgiving. If you're going to get a job, you have to work for it. You have to perform for it. If you're going to keep the job, you have to perform in order to keep that job. If you don't perform, guess what? That job is very unforgiving. You will be fired. All right? Athletics. If you're going to make a ball team, you got to perform. Okay? If you don't perform, you don't make the team. If you're going to stay on the team, you got to perform. If you don't perform, you're not going to stay on that team. They have what is known as cuts. All right? And so, works-based, performance-based things are always unforgiving. But true righteousness is rooted and grounded in forgiveness. Because if I'm going to have the righteousness that will stand before a holy God, I have to have a perfect righteousness. I don't have that perfect righteousness. There's only one who does. The Lord Jesus who obeyed the law to the glory of God in our place. So when I trust the Son, His righteousness is credited to me. And His cross is credited to me. Which means I receive forgiveness in the Son. That's where righteousness is found. It's found and grounded in forgiveness. And and, and, uh, forgiveness demonstrates itself in a forgiving spirit. This brother's bitter, unforgiving spirit proves he's never received forgiveness himself. Forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. Maybe you've seen over the past couple of weeks, uh, there was a football player for the Philadelphia Eagles. And his name's Cooper. And this guy, in a drunken uh, rant, with someone videoing him on a camera phone at a concert, started spewing all of these racial uh, slurs about African Americans. Well, afterwards, he at least appeared very broken. I mean, he's received a lot of uh, pushback on what he has said, and rightfully so. But here's what he said. He said, I am so ashamed and disgusted with myself. I I want to apologize. I've been offensive. 
There are no excuses for what I've done. What I did was wrong and I will accept the consequences. Sounds pretty broken. There's no excuses made there. He's taking, you know, responsibility. But what's interesting, there was, a, there was two very different responses from two of his teammates to his racial slurs. Both of them are African American, by the way. The first is by the quarterback, Michael Vick. Here's what Michael Vick said about Cooper's obvious racism. We all make mistakes in life. And we will all do and say things that maybe we do mean and maybe we don't mean. But as a teammate, I forgive him. And then uh, there was LaShawn McCoy. Who says, I forgive him. But in a situation like this, you really find out about someone. Just on a friendship level, I can't really respect someone like that. Well, it is true, he says, I forgive him, but the following words seem to undermine what he's saying there. What is the difference between Michael Vick and LaShawn McCoy? Michael Vick has recently just ended 21 months in a federal penitentiary. And during that time, he was broken. In fact, Tony Dungy says he was converted to Christ during that time. Broken by sin, so aware, made aware of his need for forgiveness. He has a very intimate knowledge of the need for forgiveness because Vic has been forgiven much. Uh, LaShawn McCoy here, though, uh, he's apparently less aware of his need for forgiveness. He, in fact, he appears to be placing himself above Cooper as if he's never made those kind of comments, as if he's never struggled with uh, racism and hatred towards someone else. That's hypocrisy. But not, uh, fourthly, uh, another mark of works-based religion, besides an unforgiving spirit, is note the ingratitude on the part of the elder brother. He says... You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Now keep in mind, two-thirds of the estate is the older brothers. The firstborn, the elder brother in that world, receives two-thirds of the father's inheritance. So he has two-thirds of the inheritance, and yet he's talking about, you've never even given me a a young goat. Uh, Works-based religionists are very ungrateful people. Have you ever been around them? Well, maybe you've looked in the mirror and saw one. I have, quite often. Performance-based people are not grateful. In fact, it's interesting how Paul describes an unbeliever in Romans 1. He says, although they, they knew God as God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. Now, why is that? Well, Someone who's works-based believes that what they have, they earned. Why would you be grateful for something you earned? And the things that he doesn't have, he deserves. (laughs) That's why a person is not grateful who's works-based. For instance, if you have uh, money in the bank, you have a good job. Well, the reason I have money in the bank is I'm a hard-working American citizen. Okay? 
Never mind the fact that God graciously gave you the capacities to even get and keep a job. Well, I went to school. I have the education. That's why I am able to do what I do and go to places I go. That's a person who's works-based or a person who has health. When was the last time you thanked the Lord for health? Well, the reason I'm healthy is because I eat right and I exercise. I am disciplined. That's a works-based mentality, okay? Works-based religion is ungrateful. Fifthly, those who are works-based have unrepentant, slanderous tongues against those who don't measure up to them. Notice in verse 30. In verse 30, But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. How did he know that the younger brother had devoured his inheritance with prostitutes. He just found out the younger brother was home. The younger brother's been in the far country. They didn't have Facebook, television, tweets and emails and texting or anything like that. He would have had no clue what the younger brother had been doing all this time. This is slander. This is slander. Slander involves two things. Saying something about someone that may or may not be true. It could be true. It may or may not be true, but it defames that person's name. Thinking about it, you are stealing someone's reputation when you slander. How lightly we gloss over that offense. There's nothing more destructive you could do to a person is take away their name. Secondly, slander is a negative comment about someone that may or may not be true that has no God-glorifying or good purpose behind it. That's slander. And works-based religionist, okay, are more jealous and zealous to spread bad news than good news. You ever been around one? The only good news they want to spread is about them. That's the works-based religionists. Jesus is showing the Pharisees here why they don't love the lost. Even though they claim obedience to the law of God, they do not love the lost. Indeed, if the elder brother had really loved his neighbor as himself, he would have been out in the far country searching for his younger brother rather than slandering him about what he was doing in the far country. Okay? That's works-based religion. The question is, how are we like that? How are we like that? We ignore the hopeless situation of the lost and dying world, we kind of thumb our noses at them, in fact. We would never do that. We would never be like that. And yet we come joyless week after week to worship and sit in our pews comfortably while the lost are out there in the far country, dying hopelessly. We have a reputation for being good citizens, upstanding Christians, but inside we're cold. 
There's no joyful worship in our hearts, as evidenced by the fact we rarely open our Bibles in our homes. Even if we do open our Bibles in our homes, we're just kind of doing our homework so that our teacher doesn't give us an F for the day. Okay? That's the elder brother here. Uh, we cherish uh, secret sins. We, we look down on people who are different than us. We, we covet recognition for what we do. And when we don't get that recognition, we get angry. We covet and get jealous and bitter when others are promoted and elevated above us. People that don't even deserve what they get. As evidenced by our discouragement and our frustrations and our jealousies. Because we're not, at the end of the day, noticed for what we do. And even if we came at one point to the Father like the prodigal, broken and melted and desperate, in need of grace and mercy for whatever reason, whether it's because we are not immersed in body life at the local church, or we're not availing ourselves to the means of grace that God has given us, we've become cold and drifted into elder brother-ish behavior. Okay? There's a real tendency for all of us for that, as evidenced by our judgmental attitudes, our just our critical spirits, our negativity, our joylessness. What is the cure to that? There's only one cure. It's not by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and saying, I'm going to be more positive today. That'll last for about two hours. The cure is mercy. The cure is grace. The cure is recognizing the love of God in Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle says, The man who really feels that we all stand by grace and are all debtors and that the best of us has nothing to boast about and has nothing which he has not received, such a man will not be found talking like the elder brother. I was talking to Travis Kearns on Friday. He was telling me about this pastor who has planted a church in Utah, and now they have some 50 to 70 people coming. But they're about to have to close the doors because they don't have money for rent. And Travis has been given some monies from the, uh, from the North American Mission Board. Again, let me just say as a side here, I'll stand outside the pulpit. This is not part of the sermon. Um, if you're not giving to the local church, you're not giving to missions. Because part of our monies go to the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board. And in my view, if you're a Christian and you're not giving, that's an assault on the kingdom. Okay? I'll get back in my pulpit now. Well, they have these monies. And he's able to take these monies. And he said to this pastor who's broken and desperate, we're going to pay your rent for the rest of the year and the beginning of next year. And he said the guy just broke down in tears. Gratitude. Thanksgiving. For the mercy Travis had shown him. That's what melts a cold and bitter and slanderous and self-righteous heart. It's grace. It's mercy. 
You show me someone who is ungrateful and critical and judgmental and slanderous. I'll show you someone who hasn't been melted by grace. No matter how religious that person might be on the outside. And that's where this elder brother is a picture of the Pharisees. He wouldn't go in for the celebration. He wanted nothing to do with that celebration. Because grace was undermining his efforts. Grace was exposing his heart. He had come to the place where he didn't even love sinners. And yet that was the very calling of Israel. Do you remember that from our study in Genesis on Sunday evening? After Genesis 11, there is a judgment on Babel. Genesis 12 follows where God says, Abraham, through your offspring, which is Israel, I'm going to bless the nations. The nations I just judged in Genesis 11. That was Israel's calling. And because of self-righteousness, because of um, works-based religion and, and disdain for sinners, Israel had lost their, coin, their calling. And Jesus is doing the opposite. Remember, that's what precipitates this story. Jesus is dining with sinners. The Pharisees had nothing to do with sinners. That's the whole point here. Indeed, we don't understand this story. If we don't remember who's telling the story and why he's telling the story. Jesus is the true elder brother. Israel had missed their calling. These Pharisees were the leaders of Israel. The elder brother represented the Pharisees. He's the true elder brother though. He came to do what the corporate nation was called to do but failed to do. Be a light to the nations. But he doesn't merely just welcome prodigals and sinners unlike this elder brother. He actually goes to the pig pen and retrieves them. You know what's interesting? If we forget that Jesus is the one who tells this story, we fail to grasp the full expression of the Father's love. Because the, the reason Jesus and the Father can welcome sinners is because Jesus is going to die for them. The Father isn't permissive towards sin, okay? Sin must be penalized, all right? But the Father absorbs the debt of sin in His Son, Jesus. The true elder brother. In fact, as we close here, I want you to notice a passage from Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, we have a picture um, of the elder brother who sings in celebration over the salvation of his brothers. In verses 2, or, or chapter 2, verses 9 to 12, it says... But we see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Notice it's grace. It's not amnesty. If God's going to forgive you, it has to be grace, not amnesty. What's the difference? Amnesty costs no one anything. 
Grace costs the person who gives it. And so he, he, he pours out grace and he absorbs the debt in his son who tasted death. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Notice, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is our brother. He is our elder brother. He is the firstborn over all of creation, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The joy of heaven's celebration is anticipated in this celebration in the story. But it's also anticipated in the fellowship of the singing brother. The singing brother who will sing of God's mercy and grace poured out on his brothers as he dies on the cross to take their shame in their place. That's the point of this story. Now, one more question. Why does Jesus tell this story so that one is saved and one isn't? The prodigal is saved the older brother evidently is not well for one thing it's important to know that both kinds of rebellion are equally dangerous okay they're equally sinful but the rebellion in religion is much more sinister than outward rebellion in other words a person who does drugs and is promiscuous is very clearly lost. But a person who teaches Sunday school and is the chairman of the deacons is not necessarily clearly lost. Jesus is telling this story because it reminds us that works-based religion is perhaps the most sinister way to be lost. Churches are filled with people who think they are going to heaven because they're noble and moral And they sacrifice at the church. They sacrifice in the community. And Jesus is saying that has nothing to do with it. That has nothing to do with it. God's standard is perfection. And God must penalize sin. But Jesus, the true elder brother, has taken that sin in his stead, if you will trust him. The whole purpose of this gospel is to take us to the cross. Luke chapter 23 and 24. The question is, how will the story end for us? The story doesn't end. We don't know how the, the elder brother responded. It's open-ended. It's left to us. How will you respond to this story? Where do you find yourself in this story? Let's, let's pray.